everybody. This is Basil, your best friend. And uh, this is the traditional whispery pre-show introduction. Gonzo, are you there? I am here. Nope, you gotta whisper. This nope. is the, it's the part I'm not where we do it. Okay. People, so, people need to know. Okay, so we're whispering because it's before the show. This is like a secret thing. Okay, so uh, here we are. We're here. This is a new episode. We, again, you know, as usual, apologize. It takes so long to get them out. Uh, there is a, a series of unfortunate events. We had like three cancellations slash reschedule. Postponements, yeah. So that was a big thing. We would have like two or three episodes out by now, but you know, this is just how it's happening, I guess. So uh, pray for that. Also, Ghana's 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 is still uh, editing that movie. Right? You know, actually, just today, <laughs> I submitted the uh, uh, the second half of the film for screening review and so it it is technically complete although you know there will be plenty of uh small revisions that uh tend to happen with the uh people who uh, run the whole operation uh, telling me what to do i'm just yeah i'm just a clickety finger yeah you're just a clicky finger so there you go the movie's almost done the movie's called inhuman it's gonna be great edited by gons Produced by somebody else, um, directed by Gons. That's right. Are you the director? I have received the executive director title. Whoa! Yep. I didn't even know that was a real title. Yep, maybe not. I think so. All right, so there's that cool movie coming out, everybody. Also, what else are we talking about here? Hold on, let me look at my list. Oh, okay. So episode 100 is coming up, and so our speak pipe application is on our website canarycryradio.com you can go there and leave us a message you can give us comments or questions and we may just address a couple of those on the 100th episode so if you got some good go do that it'll be cool you can hear yourself on the podcast you can tell all your friends it'll be so cool i do want to take this opportunity Uh oh to point out an audience member and I know we don't usually do that, but I'm going to do it. Okay. I, I want to breathe life into our brother, Cody. Okay. He has turned into a skeleton waiting oh. for our next episode. Oh, and, no. And we, we, we want to, to bring life back into his life and, and resurrect him from from his, um, right. his, he's his just patient. Been, he's been sitting on his couch waiting for an episode. No, he's sitting in front of his laptop. Oh, and he turned into a skeleton. He just, he just disintegrated into a skeleton. And, and there's cobwebs and dust. And he's got um, marks of letters on his head, which is what? very strange. A very strange situation. Are you, are you looking at a picture or something? Perhaps. Okay, because that's weird. All right. So there you go, or Cody. Have a, a, an amazing go. imagination. Yeah, it's freaking me out. <laughs> okay, so here you go, Cody. This episode's for you, buddy. And also all the other people who have messaged us and left us wonderful comments about how they are waiting anxiously. So here's an episode. Before we do that, I'm obligated uh, to... <laughs> by, by myself. I'm obligating... <laughs> Yourself I'm ob- obligatory. I'm obligating myself to mention we still have some of the USB archive cards available. I have been on the phone with companies 
getting samples, doing things. And I can confirm the Canary Cry Radio Archive Project USB drive will be made of metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I guess it doesn't, I guess a lot of things are made of metal, but this is a uh, credit card shaped and sized USB drive that will have the first 100 episodes of Canary Cry Radio. I think there's about 15 flybys. There's an album of music handpicked by Gons and uh, some other cool stuff on there. It's got art and some other little notes and things like that. Great, great Canary Cry Radio stuff. Now, let me tell you, Gons and I are not in the business of retail. We are not here to sell you uh, these USB drives. What this is simply is for those of you who feel urged and led by the Holy Spirit, if you've been educated or, or uplifted or edified by Canary Cry Radio and you just uh, are, are into it and you want to support the ministry, if you sign up on Canary Cry Radio to support the show for $15 or more a month, we will send you one of these wonderful uh, waterproof durable metal awesome hard drives or no uh, usb drives that will survive on when the apocalypse hits when everything goes down when everything when the, when the sky rolls back like a scroll and the internet shuts down what happens if the internet's gone what what else is gone canary cry radio but if you have this usb drive you have all of canary cry radio you can share it you can do whatever you got to do and uh It'll help you get through the hard times. Anyways, so there's that. That is simply for that. And and uh, this show is, is still going only because of the generous uh, help by you guys. And we truly, truly appreciate it. So go do that. Anything else? We're so indie. We're so indie. We're so not corporate, bro. We're supported by the people. Okay, here we go. Here's the episode. All right. Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, oh wait. Also, oh gosh, no. we're still going. It's, I know. I'm people sorry. People expect to be in I know, the episode. I know. They're going. We're going. We're going. Here we go. They're still listening. Okay. So we we just did a Canary Cry Radio uh, live stream event that we did. Yeah, and, we, he, and and Basil showed his face, sort of. Sort of. No, he didn't. But you can see. You, you can, can see, see more the, of him. You can see what it would look like if I was not invisible. <laughs> <laughs> it's there. You can go do it. It's on Canary Cry uh, Radio YouTube channel. Go there, subscribe, check it out. We're gonna be doing more of those. Uh, we don't have a schedule right now, but we're gonna just be doing them every once in a while. And can if I, you sub- I... subscribe to us on YouTube, it'll send you a little notification when we're can about I, to do it can i just, now now can, you can can speak. i can i just schedule it now no <laughs> why not <laughs> because you always schedule things and then it doesn't happen that's not true it is totally true so that's so not just, true so go subscribe to the youtube He's lying. channel or keep checking back at the facebook we'll let you know like maybe hours before maybe and yeah, then this, this last one was what uh no warning 
It was we started and then we told people. <laughs> so there you go. Just and keep we were trying to get it started for half hour, and then all of a sudden it just started on its own. Yeah, it magically just started working without us knowing, and then people started showing up. It was weird. Okay, so here we go. Going to the episode. Episode time. Go go go. You're listening to Canary Cry Radio. Vampires. They have long been a staple of folk tales, horror stories, and Hollywood films, and they are seeing a new surge in popularity, to say the very least. But it may surprise you to learn that not everybody considers vampires pure fiction. I am a hybrid. You're a hybrid. Correct. So you drink people's blood. Correct. So much of science, both geologically, even astronomically, uh, linguistically, architecturally. These things trace back to Mount Ararat and to that very place where the second generation of humanity, in other words, after the Adam people were wiped out, then you had Noah and his family, and everything began with Noah and his family. Every one of us is related to Noah. Get that same lore throughout. If you, I mean, if you look at these books like the Book of Enoch, they really talk about that. They talk about how the fallen angels who came down, they didn't just take wives, they just take wives, they took on students and pupils. They taught them the dark arts. They taught them weird black magic and all kinds of strange things that that have survived to this day. And and then the fact of the matter is, is that what people don't realize in these ancient accounts, okay, the ancient account of Enoch tells us the watchers came down from the heavens, they took the wives and themselves among the human women, right, and they made unions with them and they bore heroes, monsters, and giants of old. That's what the scripture says. Here's Basil and Gons. Hey everybody and welcome to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. My name is Basil. And this is Gons. Welcome to episode number 99. 99. 99. We're, we're almost there. We're almost there. 200. Almost. The story of Nephilim, giants who roamed the earth is a past not recognized as true history in the ivory towers of academia, yet our culture is drenched with stories and statues of strange mythological creatures from 400-foot titans to hybrid beings to gods who ruled over humans. Even today, our pop culture has a huge fascination with werewolves and zombies and vampires, which begs the question, where did these ideas come from? And... While these are dismissed as mere fiction or primitive attempts to describe what people in the ancients didn't understand, some of us believe that the truth is, in fact, stranger than fiction. Our guest today is Dr. Judd Burton. He's the author of Interview with the Giant and holds an MA in Anthropology and a PhD in History at Texas Tech University with a focus 
on early Christianity and Greco-Roman religions. His website, Burton Beyond, is devoted to conducting sound research in the fields of archaeology, biblical studies, ethnology, folklore, history, mythology, paranormal studies, philosophy, and religion, which could collectively be described as para-ethnology. He's dedicated to the search for truth through scholarly pursuit. And he's here with us, Dr. Judd Burton. Welcome to Canary Cry Radio. What's up, Judd? Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Now, while we're not specifically here to talk about your book, I am actually interested in uh, in what that's about. I, I hadn't heard of it before now. What is Interview with a Giant? Well, Interview with a Giant was kind of an outgrowth of my dissertation research. My training is in uh, ancient history, and uh, I also have uh, archaeological training. I had the good fortune of working on a number of sites around the world. Uh, one of those was Caesarea Philippi in Israel, and uh, I eventually wrote a, a dissertation on the religious history focusing on uh, the sacred geography of, of the region, which okay. left all kinds of doors open for, you know, taking a look at, at the, uh, not just Judeo-Christian traditions that were associated with the Mount Hermon, Caesarea Philippi area, but also, you know, older pagan traditions. You know, there's, of course, the shrine of Pan that existed in Caesarea Philippi. But in, in dealing with that region and its religious history, you know, you invariably come across all kinds of traditions that deal with uh, the, the Watchers and the, the Nephilim, uh, which many of the listeners will, will be familiar with. And I, as I went through the, the task of, of doing my literature review and actually writing the, the text of the dissertation, I, you know, I would come across these questions you know, that, that uh, really didn't necessarily fit into the dissertation itself, but I, I nonetheless had this nagging curiosity and, and wanted answers for myself. And um, so I would write these little sketches, you know, just kind of in skeleton form of the questions that arose, and they just kept piling up. And... They didn't really have the narrative arc of a novel, but I thought um, if I took the tools that I had from anthropology and sort of brought them to bear against the question of the giants, you know, know, is there a culture of the giants? Is there there something that that can be quantified out of of the the material and the biblical text and the the non-canon stuff like Enoch? Uh, is there something that, that we can use to build a culture model like an anthropologist might from you know, garnering all kinds of data that they do in the field? And the precipitates of, of all of that ended up in an interview with John, and that's why I call it Notes, uh, Ethno-Historical Notes on the Nephilim as the subtitle. And so I... I, I Essentially, once I had all of the essays that were in nascent form, once I had all of those ready, I expanded them, and I, I did what a lot of classicists 
had been doing um, in the 20th century. Uh, people that were studying ancient Greece and ancient Rome, like Moses Finley and, and Ward Fowler, these guys were looking at what anthropologists were doing in the field. You know, you know anthropologists all over the world are living amongst and observing you know, these preliterate non-industrial cultures. Basically watching things like religion and mythology in a laboratory, almost a laboratory, something as close as you can get with human subjects. And historians and classicists you know, dealt with it. The ancient world wondered what they could, could maybe garner from uh, known texts that other historians may not have been able to using a different kind of methodology. And in the case of Moses Finley, he wrote a book called The World of Odysseus, in which he he looked at the Iliad and the Odyssey, like a, an anthropologist might view uh, an interview transcript from a subject, and was able to put together this culture model for Dark Age Greece. And by the same token, scholars like Ward Fowler basically rewrote the book on what we know about ancient Roman religion in its purest form, which is more like animism than the, the Greco-Roman, uh, really the, the strict Greek style of paganism. Uh, and so I thought this was, this was very interesting and, and had some possibilities, had some potentialities for um, some good sound uh, research regarding uh, the Watchers and the Nephilim all the, you know, the textual traditions and the uh, culture surrounding that. And so I, I brought to bear those tools that I had at my disposal, not on necessarily new material. I mean, there are plenty of researchers who have been dealing with this material, uh, you know, for decades, centuries even. But nobody was really using, you know, anthropology and its subdisciplines like ethnohistory to kind of maybe bring a fresh uh, approach to the question of, of the giants and the watchers. Yeah, that's really cool. You know, as someone that studied sociology in college, I I know that the theory of evolution is kind of, you know, it's a, it's a pillar in the natural sciences, but it's definitely uh, crept its way into the social sciences. And did that, sure. is there an influence there with, you know, some of the methodology of, you know, coming from anthropology that, you know, that you had to work around when you study a topic like the Giants, or is it strictly, you know, based on the literature of, you know, ancient history and everything else? Well, to to a degree, you have to work around it. I mean, mo most of what I, I'm, as an anthropologist, I, I'm primarily a cultural anthropologist and archaeologist. Uh, now, I, I have training in, you know, the the physical side of anthropology, too, which is basically human biological history. And, of course, the, the natural sciences, as you say, are, are rife with evolutionary theory, which is not something that I subscribe to. But the uh, as far as the nuts and bolts of the human form and the, the sorts of changes uh, that might be brought on by natural selection, you know, I, I think that you can look at the fossil record and say that, well, you may be dealing with uh, different kinds of you know, they're all human, but they're, the variation can be explained over time and space the same way that breeds of dogs can be explained over time and space. Uh, 
So, yeah, there were, you know, there are a few things that you have to work around, but, but for the most part, the methodology that I used for interview with the giant was pretty straightforward ethnology, uh, cultural anthropology. But it, it, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, the evolutionary sciences did have an impact on the liberal arts and uh, the social sciences. I mean, it, it invariably changed the way that, that not just Western society, but, but the scientific community, the scholastic community, uh, began to view everything. You know, we began to, to look at these very myopic, monolithic models of culture. You know, I, I'm thinking of how it impacted history and archaeology. Uh, you know, and, and people are, are trained here to this day to, to, to say that culture progresses in a linear fashion. And that is, that is not a universal invariant at all. Interesting. Now, so it sounds like as as an anthropologist, uh, eth- ethnologist, uh, archaeologist, all type of stuff like that, you run into a lot of just general mythology. It seems like that's a big part of that field. I mean, was there something that happened to you in life, or what? What exactly got you into all of this, into the uh, the academic fields, and also just general mythology? Well, mythology certainly plays a, a a role in all this. You can't get get into this research without delving into it fairly deeply. Uh, I, I'll return to that point in a moment. But as to how I got interested in all this, I blame books and I blame I blame the people that provided them to me. Uh, I you know I tell people that I, I grew up with the Bible in one hand and National Geographic in the other. There was always reading material in the house, and I, I, I had the, the good fortune and blessing of growing up in a Christian household. My grandmother was the librarian in the little town that I grew up in, so that was our babysitting after school a lot of times. So I, you know, I, I literally grew up around books and, and just loving anything that I could I could learn from books and and being. Um, you know, taught to savor words and language. I was given, uh, you know, carte blanche, you know, and, and whatever sets of books I had access to. So I, I was getting equal parts biblical schooling, you know, discipleship and church. And at the same time, you know, I was being exposed to, you know, world cultures and history and, you know, uh, you know mythology typically sparks the imagination of kids anyway, and so, I, you know, I, I was exposed to a lot of the the stuff that, that maybe some other kids might not have had immediate access to, but, you know, I'm thinking of, you know, classics like you know, Bullfinch and Edith Hamilton, you know, some of the, the classic mythologists. So, you know, I, I was just, I was encouraged to, you know, follow my passions, and, I, you know, there were questions that emerged about certain passages in the Bible. As I came to know the Bible more intimately in my walk, I, you know, I began to wonder what did the Bible allow for in terms of mythology? You know, what what did the biblical lens, the scope of, of the Bible allow for in terms of world mythology and world culture, uh, for that matter? So all, all of these questions were an outgrowth of the support, you know, that I had from my parents and my, my grandmother and my great aunt and uncle. You know, there's a laundry list of them. 
and then later my teachers and professors, um, to an extent anyway. I mean, most of the, what you might call my, my schooling agenda, my research agenda was pretty straightforward. So, I, you know, I had to pursue a lot of my my own research outside the scope of your more grounded academic training, I guess you might say. Um, yeah, but invariably you, you you deal with mythology because I mean these are these are mythological topics, and that that word is probably one of the most abused words in Western languages. We've gotten so far away from you know the original idiom. I, I I've told this story time and time again in my world civilization classes to my students. You know that 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 the, the root of that word is the Greek word mutas, which which is a story, uh, oftentimes a, a a story with religious or historical significance. You know, you hear that word today, we immediately equate it with a, you know something that's false. But to get past, you know, if we can get past that, then you begin to see that mythology can serve as a medium for the preservation of all kinds of information. And in fact, this was the kind of mindset that. Many ancient peoples had what I, I call in my lectures the mythological mind. You know, we've already seen how mythology can preserve elements of historicity. Frank Calvert and Heinrich Schliemann used the Iliad and the Odyssey to find Hitzerlich, uh, where the, the city of Troy was, was. You know, for the longest time we thought that Gilgamesh was simply a, a literary invention of some Mesopotamian epic. Well, once we discovered the Sumerian Kings list, who is it that shows up on the Sumerian Kings list in the early third millennium BC? Gilgamesh, king of the city-state of Uruk. Uh, the same thing can be said of uh, Romulus in Roman mythology. We know from the records that the antiquarians kept and the uh, uh, Roman historians that the there were seven kings of Rome before the Republican era. And the first one of those was Romulus. So events, places, people are often mythologized. They're preserved in this medium. And people that think that way are thinking along mythological lines. They're not compartmentalizing their disciplines, their bodies of knowledge. You know, right? So that, uh, um, you know, philosophy and history and the sciences and uh, economics and all of that is just knowledge floating in the same kind of medium, usually grounded in oral tradition. But there was a right. book um, a number of years ago called um, Hamlet's Mill, in which the authors posited that uh, mythology, you know, the stories of the gods contained, you know, it wasn't just theology, but the interaction of the gods often corresponded to the planets and stars and celestial bodies that they represented, and those, in turn, corresponded to uh, movements in the heavens. And star-watching gave you uh, everything from simple mathematics all the way to calculus. If you could extrapolate that, then you could use it for engineering, and so on and so forth. And so our, our understanding of myth and the the present world, on a, at least on a popular level, is very truncated. And the farther back in civilized history that we go, that is the, the periods when people began to build cities, 
and beyond that into prehistory. This is how humans typically thought, and you you, you see elements of this in the, the biblical world. You know? It's interesting. You it kind of sounds like what you're saying is that within mythology, there's also, you know, it, it was a way for people to sort of combine the knowledge that they had into uh, uh, some sort of medium that would survive history when they didn't necessarily have, you know. Mm-hmm textbooks and and computers and things like that so there's just a little bit of uh, some way to look at it that has truth sprinkled in like a practical yeah practical means to preserve preserving knowledge or something absolutely i mean you know those that's what i'm saying those oral traditions typically had cultural mechanisms built into them where you had had people who were assigned the task of memorizing vast amounts of, of material and then passing that along to the next right. generation. So what uh, that kind of naturally brings up the question of, you know, there's all sorts of myths that we can go into. Um, I mean, it being the season that we're in right now, I mean, you have myths like werewolves and vampires and, and uh, I don't know, all sorts of stuff like that, where I think technically people would call them myths, but are, are those sorts of things that you've looked into or or can speak to if there's any, I don't know, historical relevance to the myths? Oh, my, yes. Uh, now, of course, there's there's a whole pantheon of uh, a veritable pantheon of demonic entities and, and creatures that are in some ways archetypal but there are sort of universal forms for them uh, you know like the, the vampire and the werewolf as you say and even even things like the zombie but they're culturally peculiar you know you, you, you find them around the world but they have, they're they're affected by the culture in which you find them, uh, or, or as I would argue, as they are observed and experienced in those cultures, but they do they do seem to turn up um, very much like giants. Uh, that they do seem to turn up in world mythology with some astonishing frequency. Where would you like to go? I was going to say, this is October, and it is interesting. As long as we're on the the subject of myth, I mean, uh, I think the most classic examples are vampires and werewolves. But, Mm -hmm. you know, I think with vampires, people are kind of, uh, we kind of have an understanding that there was, you know, there have been blood-sucking people or blood-drinking people. There was uh, perhaps an actual Count Dracula who, you know, was sort of a nasty man and things like that. I mean, maybe let's start there. Maybe it's easier to start there. And then and then I am a little bit interested in werewolves, where exactly that could have come from. Because as, you know, believers and we have... Uh, all sorts of worldviews that allow for uh, at least demonic entities and and even perhaps fallen uh, angelic entities. And, you know, even if you're getting a little crazy, maybe some uh, chimeric entities that may have come from certain uh, parts of the antediluvian world or even today. Uh, So let's start with vampires and then we'll go to werewolves. And then we have okay. to hit zombies. Okay. Well, you, you raise an interesting point about the antediluvian world, and this is 
something that I'm, I'm writing on right now, and I, I've actually written on, there's a chapter in the interview with John that deals with the antediluvian origins of the vampire that actually go back to the judgment handed down on the, uh, the giants. One of the judgments handed down by Yahweh uh, that's actually given to the watchers and the giants by Enoch is that the... Um, the spirits of the giants, after they're destroyed in the deluge, are to uh, roam the earth. I'm paraphrasing here. Roam the earth and, and placate, or not placate, but plague mankind, uh, and to hunger and thirst, but to never be sated. Uh, the connection with, the, with vampires there really struck me after I, not after I read that, because I was exposed to the non-canon stuff like Enoch and Jasher when I was in college. But when I, I read Montague Summer's classic work, The Vampire uh, is Kipping Ken, which I would recommend highly to anybody who's interested in this topic. I, I still think that it's the finest work on, on vampirism to date. At any rate, he, you know, uh, Summer referenced a lot of this material. And he, he, too, pointed back to the antediluvian world and these passages in particular as as potential origins for uh, the vampire as a demonic entity. Uh, I think as a, a clergyman, I think you understood that. So I think one could make an argument that certain demonic entities, um, and, and at its heart, vampirism is is demonic. Whether you're talking about the actual uh, hematophagy or the, the feeding on blood, or energy draining or life draining effect that some of these entities can have. You know, it all goes back to the same source. That's why I called the the chapter, you know, it's a kind of epidemiological study. It goes back to, the chapter is actually called Vampire Zero instead of, you know, like Patient Zero. Right, that's interesting. Looking at the, looking at the origins of, of vampirism as a, as a kind of uh, preternatural disease that doesn't behave like, so do you think like it's a, bio, a, like a not just like a biological pathogen, but something that actually has supernatural and biological qualities? Right. You know, we actually did a whole episode on blood. Oh my goodness, uh, probably maybe even two years ago, and. You know, in the studies, I mean, there's a lot to say about blood. I mean, the Bible has a lot to say about blood, and and ancient. Um, civilizations and texts also say a lot of, you know, pretty spiritual things about blood. And I think that's definitely adds to the, 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 I don't know, sort of mysterious quality around vampires is that there is some sort of supernatural, uh, aspect to it. So what I'm hearing you say is that possibly vampirism is um, well, I'm hearing a couple things and I'll let you clarify, which is, Definitely some de- demonic uh, influence involved, um, but also possibly some sort of biological uh, significance. Mm-hmm. What well, What do you mean by the biological significance? Well, I, you don't. You, know, you you really don't even have to look very far past uh, the, the Bible for that answer. I mean, the, in the, the Torah, you know, we find the words "the blood is the life," and you mentioned that that that. Uh, not just in uh, the, the ancient Hebraic tradition, but also in traditions around the world, um, there is this idea about the sacrality of blood, uh, that blood is somehow imbued at, at the very least 
with some sort of supernatural power. Um, and certainly, at the other end of the spectrum, the basis for for, for life. Uh, but it's really a combination. It's a marriage of, of those two things. Um, and, and that's why I say that, you know, you can look at vampirism as a kind of agent that has both biological and preternatural qualities to it. Do you think uh, that there are true vampires, not just people who drink blood, because obviously the occult world is riddled with uh, blood drinking and and right. and the the sacredness of blood and all the corruption that comes with that, but do you think that there may actually be some sort of creature or some sort of corruption of mankind that requires uh, drinking of blood, or is that just uh, in sort of a ritualistic, spiritual sense when we are addressing the occult? Well, key points. The first, in, in any, as you say, blood is used in any number of you know, occult forms or rituals or, or thaumaturgy or what have you, blood is used, it can be used, and is thought to have the same kind of potency that it does in other religious circles. It's simply being used for nefarious purposes. Those people that actually that, that drink blood, that are mimicking the, the vampire, in terms of the nomenclature of, of the subject, are technically vampiroids, they're emulating uh, the action of a vampire. Secondly, we have to remember that demons have the benefit of thousands of years of knowledge. They, they are heirs to what the Watchers taught humanity. To some degree, they have the ability, not to the same degree as the fallen angels, but I believe to some degree, they have the ability to manipulate matter, not create, because you know, there's only one creator. Are you talking about vampires right now, or yeah? Or, yeah. yeah. I'm, talking, okay. I'm, talking, I'm talking about vampires. The so, about so a, they, they could potentially manipulate matter so that it it looks, you know, whatever they're dealing with, they they can make a kind of chimera. I, I I'm sort of reaching now to the realm of speculation, but. You, you have to, again, you have to understand the kind of knowledge, technology, if you will, uh, that these, these entities are able to manipulate. They can fashion this to suit whatever our, our fears, whatever our popular uh, culture uh, may dictate that something of this nature should look like. In, in the case of uh, recent history, a sexy 20-something? Exactly. You know, blowing, <laughs> you know, vamp, teenage vampire or something. Right. So it's yeah. kind of like a, a shape shifting going on. Is, is that sort of? Well, sort of, but uh, maybe even the construction of a kind of, of chimerical creature. I mean, those of, those certainly have precedent in the Antediluvian world, especially if you go back and look at the, the material in Enoch and Jasher and. Uh, I think the Genesis Apocryphon even has some chimerical references, but certainly this other material does. So the you know the tweaking with the human genome, the combination of, of human genes with animals or, or, or whatever else, the, the precedent for that is already there. I think a lot of those things show up 
uh, you know, as chimeras in world mythology. You have to keep in mind that the, these demonic entities, although disembodied, they have they have all this knowledge. They have all the technology. Right. And uh, speaking to the chimera point, I mean, uh, vampires are often associated with bats and sort of even being able to either switch back and forth or a vampire having a bat-like uh, quality or uh, even abilities, which would uh, well, definitely uh, speak on, to a chimera well, quality. Depending on what part of the world you're in, they, they have associations with all kinds of, of uh, animals. You know, there are vampires in Southeast Asia that are in... Uh, Malaysia, actually, I think that are associated with frogs there. Um, so <laughs> the the, the again, cutest of vampires. I, I, yeah, I suppose. I suppose. Do they have uh, teeth? Uh, that's a great question. I don't know. I just remember that they were uh, associated with these big green tree frogs. That, that live yeah. There. Yeah, I don't care for that. I'd rather a vampire have a long, sticky tongue than scary big teeth. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting. So we have uh, vampires being some some sort of uh, paranormal entity that uh, perhaps is able to even create uh, or, or manipulate matter, not create, but manipulate matter into sort of expressing itself in a lot of different ways, depending on what part of the world that they're around, you know, gleaning fears off of uh, whatever culture they're around. Um, and recently in America are very happy to uh, be uh, very shiny, good-looking, shirtless uh, young men and women. <laughs> Interesting. Well, and that's part of that, that's part of the danger. There is that people don't see past this very, you know, even those images come from you know Western popular literature dating back you know three hundred years or so. Right. Uh, you know, because there is supposed to be some sort of seductive quality, right? Exactly. 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 Which was consequently a technique that was thought by Azazel. Say that one more time. Well, seduction was one of the things that uh, the watcher Azazel taught to humanity. Ah, right. Yeah, and, and, you know, culturally speaking, there's a growing fascination with, you know, the vampire lure, if you will. And, uh, you know, this year they are doing one of the first, or, you know, if you're listening to this later, they've already done, the f world's first blood rave uh, where they're going to spray gallons of real blood on uh, Halloween evening to replicate the 1998 opening scene from uh, the vampire Blade. film Blade. From Blade, yeah, that's funny. That's interesting. I would, I didn't know that that this was going to be the first time. I figured that they just uh, took that for that the writers took that from some uh, experience in life. But I'm I'm happy to know that it hasn't happened yet. Well, maybe not. Publicly to this extent, oh, yeah, you know? right, right, right. But uh, it's an odd, odd way to celebrate that movie, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I'm, I'm sure they're celebrating all sorts of things <laughs> beyond just the uh, the film. But but the film wasn't bad. I'll give you that. It is. Uh, I could see somebody celebrating it. So. Now, okay, so so that that's actually very interesting input on and 
uh, on vampirism because, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of us really think about it. Uh, and at the very most, it might be, you know, we might just stop our exploration of vampirism at demons, kind of like people do with UFOs and aliens, just uh, they're demons. That's that's all there is, and you don't have to think about anything else. So, But it's very interesting to kind of look a little bit deeper on that, and especially uh, with blood, which we did do an episode, right, Gons? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And there's an interesting parallel, if you will, between the vampire needing blood to live or survive and uh, the diametrically opposed view of blood being shed on the cross for us to have eternal life, you know. So there's that is ex- that's an excellent point because the the vampire is is really a, a mockery of Christ. It is a, a a complete reversal of of what Jesus brings to the world. Right, yeah, which, absolutely. Which seems to be their mo in every possible uh, uh, situation. Right. Well, do you have you considered you know because obviously. You mentioned how these uh, these spirits, if you will, uh, demonic spirits that represent the vampire lore, uh, have been around for a long time. Especially, you know, probably since the antediluvian world. But do you think that there are? I guess you sort of answered this in a sense that there aren't necessarily physical entities that you know live on blood like the way we see it in movies is that something that you think exists somewhere you know in a deep cave somewhere or is that just uh you know part of the storytelling i tend to think they were i mean you're dealing with a a a spiritual creature here not not a physical one physical at one time in the sense that that they were once nephilim uh but not not on this side of, of history. Now, the, the physicality, I'm not saying that they can't manipulate matter to manifest physically, and I think that that's one of the reasons why blood is such an important part of the story, because what do you have in blood? Well, you have all kinds of molecules, you have iron, you, and you have the genetic code to work with. Right, right. And it kind of makes uh, sense because, uh, you, you know, when you talk about hauntings and, and different you know, you watch these paranormal shows and stuff, which uh, they're becoming more and more difficult to watch. But a lot of times, strange, you know, uh, entities or encounters with these sort of disembodied spirits are places where there was a lot of bloodshed. Yes, and even uh, and what you find, not that there's a lot of crossover, but what what you find similar in in what they do and what you hear from people who work in deliverance ministries is that these entities can form cold spots because of the energy that they draw from people. Right. I've heard a number of people who worked in deliverance ministries tell me that. Yeah, and there's even um, you know reference to sulfur in the book of Revelation when talking about the opening of the, the bottomless pit and... Uh, some of the entities that come out of there, and one of the um, characteristics again of you know like a haunted space is uh, often reported of the smell of sulfur, which is you know I, th- I find stuff like that very interesting. What about the the sort of uh, I guess beyond just the blood sucking, you know, more of um, if you want to consider the I guess the spirit of vampirism in general, uh, you know, this idea of taking on willing 
adherents of certain, you know, people that are good natured, so to speak, buying into an agenda or, you know, something that's promoted to them and using that to gain, you know, some sort of energy or something like that. And, and I, guess, I guess what I'm getting at is an idea of maybe political vampirism or, you know, a sort of metaphorical vampirism. Is there, do you think there's a connection there in, in that sort of realm? Because, you know, I think there was a, a survey that came out recently that talked about what Americans most fear or, you know, what they don't, the, the most things they uh, are afraid of. And the number one thing was, was our government, which is really interesting that that would be a, a top of the list. But I, I just, I, I see a, a parallel here, not so much in the necessarily the blood drinking or anything like that. Although there was that guy, Sol Invictus, recently a uh, Senate candidate uh, out of um, Florida that uh, admitted to drinking blood and sacrificing goats and stuff like that, which was kind of bizarre. Uh, but do you, do you see anything there where there's a, you know, uh, the spirit of that sort of, uh, taking, taking life from prey kind of, uh, kind of a thing? Oh my, yes. I, I think it's rampant, uh, in this country and certainly in the world in general, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, look at, look at the, on, on the popular culture level, look at the appeal that the vampire still has, the, uh, you know, the twilight. Uh, it's just you know insidious. I mean, right. Not to mention annoying, but it is it is insidious. Uh, but if <laughs> if you if you look at uh, you know, you're talking about political corruption, uh, of course there there are vampiric elements there. If you're looking looking at a spirit of vampirism that preys on people that are supposed to be protecting and and uses them, and, uh, you know. This is this is all from the culture of the giants. What 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 do they do? They 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 were political oppressors, political, so, social, cultural oppressors of mankind in the antediluvian world and in the post flood world. They used up his resources. They used people for their own ends. They politically colluded with humans for their own ends. That is actually very interesting. Goes, I don't think I've ever heard. Goes, well, it all goes back to, you know, these, like I said, there, there is a definite, you know, culture of giants, you know, I mean, and it, it's, it's spelled out for us there, not only in the Bible, but also in the non-canon stuff like Enoch and Jasher and Jubilee, but it's also, it's, also in world mythology, if you look around the globe, you know, and you, you delve into this stuff and study it, you begin to see uh, the hallmarks of their behavior. They show up again and again and again. And the, the, the vampire is just one outgrowth of all this, one very insidious outgrowth. Do you think that there's... And this may be a silly question to ask, but there are you know, no silly questions. <laughs> there are a lot of silly questions, but here's one of them, which is, you know, you see, you know, there's a conspiracy theory, or uh, I don't even know. At the very least, you can just call it a, a Facebook uh, shareable article or th something um, about, you know current politicians or past politicians or uh, we could name names who have uh, suitcases that have 
<laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that have like vials of blood and things like that. And, you know, there, I mean, the scientific research does show that, you know, an old mouse who gets blood from a young mouse uh, starts to reverse age and things like that. I mean, do you think that there, that, that there's some actual uh, validity to that? I, I know you're not necessarily a phlebotomist, but, um, you know, there is that very scandalous-looking picture of vials of blood in Al Gore's suitcase. Well, I don't know that I could speak to the efficacy of consuming blood unless, unless somehow they they were because of involvement in the occult, which I think is also rampant in political circles. Unless they were already somehow changed. Uh, to be able for their bodies to be able to absorb that, and I'm beginning to step outside of my my expertise by even speculating on that question. But it's so you admit to not being a phlebotomist. That's right, or a hematologist, or or, or anyone remotely qualified to. There you answer go. That I don't question. even know phlebotomist. But I think that the right I, I, that I what, I, the what I know, what I know about about bloodletting and the history of bloodletting and uh, rituals in the occult. It, 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 you know, blood is a constant. It's a, it's a, a perennial in those, those kinds of rituals. Right. So that, that would not surprise me one bit if it was used to, that, to those kinds of ends. Got it. So, okay, so we've talked a bit about vampires. Now, I would be so sad if we didn't get the chance to talk about the vampire's uh, ultimate uh, nemesis, <laughs> the werecat, uh, werewolf, the wolf variety. Okay. Um, are we... Are we- we're not discriminating here. We're saying were creatures in general. Or we could say were, yeah, all sorts of were creatures. Were bear, were <laughs> bear, were giraffe, the, the, right. the silliest of uh, transmogative uh, human to animal creature. Uh, yeah, the uh, the uh, I was just the other day. I was uh, caught part of. Um, the latest adaptation of the old classic Wolfman, the, the new one with Benicio Del Toro and Anthony Hopkins. Right. And um, kind of got me thinking about, about some, of, some of these issues, some of which I've written a, a little bit about. Um, but there are, again, for people who want to delve into this, there are a couple of resources that I'll, I'll mention first, and then we can launch headlong into this. Uh, the aforementioned Montague Summers, who wrote on not just vampirism, but he wrote on he wrote several books on witchcraft and demonology, and uh, also wrote a very good book on uh, werewolves, the the werewolf and lore and legend, I think is what it was called. And then there's another one written by a, a pastor uh, and ethnologist in the 19th century by the name of Sabine Baringold. Um, and it was called the Book of the Werewolves. And both of these have really good bibliographies that point you to all kinds of source material, particularly the Montague Summer stuff. I mean, this guy handled classical and modern languages, you know, like somebody was juggling. So there, there are lots of source material there. And, and the good thing about a lot of those books is that they're they're often public domain. But I actually edited a, a, a volume of Sabine Baringold's The Book of the Werewolves, and it's available for sale on my website. But anyway, the, 
Yeah, the the werewolf or any any sort of were creature really, in much the same way that we have accounts of vampirism in the world, in, in the case of of Europe, where you actually have people like uh, you know army officers and uh, servants who uh, attend royal families, you know, actually making reports about these things. You have some of the same reports being made about werewolves in in Europe. Some very notable cases like the. Uh, the Gévaudan case in the uh, 1760s in France, South Central France. But the the werewolf too, like the uh, the vampire, seems to be a perennial feature in world mythology and world folklore. The sense that uh, a man can be again possessed by a spirit, and again we get back to the demonic, which is where I think the roots of werewolf, the werewolf lie. That you've got a, a Spirit masquerading as a, a totem, basically an animal spirit, prompting some individual to take on the features of uh, an animal. But, but the, these beliefs too are, are are as old as humanity. Totemism is, is a belief a belief in animal spirits, and not only a belief in animal spirits, but a belief that there's a kindred uh, tie, a kindred bond between animals and humans. If you look at, uh, I don't want to generalize too much, but if you look at Native American culture, totems represent uh, a lineal descent. In other words, there are tribes and clans that believe that they were descended from a certain animal, and that's why those totems are are sacred to them. The idea that, that human and animal spirits are in some way linked and is as old as humanity, it goes back to our or how to gather roots in, in many ways. Uh, so where do you think the, uh, that the, the modern werewolf came from? Well, I think it, I think it's an outgrowth of, uh, of both these beliefs and the people's experiences of these kinds of entities. In other words, uh, you know, in, in real time and space, the experience of, of these demonic entities manifesting in what we would call, you know, whatever, a werecat or a werewolf or what have you. The, uh, the Norse had the, uh, the berserkers. These guys thought that they took on the spirit and the shape of a, a bear or a wolf by wearing the pelts of those animals. And in, I believe that in some cases they actually did take on those because there was also a ritual that was associated uh, with the berserker rites that would uh, that involved hallucinogens, not 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 unlike what you find in witchcraft. There are all kinds of shape shifting legends. Speaking of witchcraft, there are all kinds of shape shifting legends that that are associated with witchcraft in the American Southwest. Well, I'm at in the Rio Grande Valley. If you go up and down the valley here. Uh, on both sides of the border, uh, you know, the, the old-timers, you know, they they talk about this stuff, about, you know, and they will swear up and down that they've, they've seen, you know, brujos or brujas, which is, you know, turning into a coyote. I mean, lawyers and, and doctors and uh, you know, people standing in the community. I've had several students, you know, talk to me about uh, their own experiences. Uh, so it's, uh, what kind of experiences? It's real. Uh, well, 
one of the legends about witches here in the Southwest is that they traveled as fireballs, sort of moving out of the realm of strictly were creatures. Uh, but he had no reason to doubt a story that had been told to him by his uncle, who was a very prominent businessman in the community. Very logical, rational fellow, from all I can gather, big influence on. This is one of my best students, too. And uh, they talked about uh, the all the sort of apotropaics that were used to catch these witches, and they would put crosses on the ground, wooden crosses on the ground, and put nails into the crosses. And the following day, there would be women or men attached to these crosses. What? Wow. And and they would they would go out and I can't remember the rite that was done at that point that they would go out and, and release them and tell them basically not to come back. Whoa. One of a number of, of things. But the, the shape-shifting, taking on the animal features, this too is, is something that's um, a, a near perennial in, in world mythology. Now, there are some interesting werewolf stories right here in North America. The one that that really has got my mind racing over the last couple of years is um, uh, an account of one in the Lewis and Clark expedition. Hmm. And the, uh, you know, most people know who Lewis and Clark were. They sent out to look at the Louisiana Territory in 1804, basically the interior of the North American continent. And Lewis and Clark, themselves never actually wrote about this. It was, it was uh, other members of the uh, expedition who were also keeping journals wrote about something called the Manitou. And uh, the Manitou was uh, uh, an Indian that could change the shape into that of a wolf and back. And it's interesting that even to this day, up up into Canada, you know, all along the, the Rockies and the, the basin of the plains on both sides of the Rockies and up into Canada, you'll find places, you know, that are Manitou this, you know, Manitou Springs, Manitou Fork, or something like this. They all bear the legacy of this creature in certain elements of Native American lore. Uh, and the these two guys claim to have seen them on a number of occasions on the Lewis and Clark expedition. Is this similar to the Skinwalker? Similar, uh, yes, yes. Okay. Now, there's also, I don't know if you've come across uh, some Catholic history. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church had, you know, had the whole series of uh, an era during the uh, Middle Ages where they, you know, were reports of exorcisms and things of that nature uh, with people that were basically possessed by, you know, like a wolf spirit or had become, or, you know, drinking potions to become wolves and, and do horrific acts like eat children and things like that. Did you run into, uh, have you ever run into some of that stuff, some of that history? Uh, well, less Roman Catholic records. Uh, I mean, the church did keep its own, its own kinds of records, but uh, a lot of this is, is, is folklore. It's part of it's it's the remnant of oral tradition that was practiced in mass uh, 
in the in prehistory in the early phases of civilization, that same kind of mindset we were talking. Uh, but there are, you know, there like I say, you know, you really have to dig for them. But there are some of these uh, official accounts. You know, they're not just your average person uh, recounting a tale. In many cases, they have the stamp of office on them. They have, they have as I said, army officers, surgeons, diplomats. But the uh, probably the most popular werewolf incident in Europe was the aforementioned Gévaudan case of of, of uh, werewolfism, where uh, a wolf-like beast was was seen terrorizing the French countryside. Uh, that they were never able to quite catch, which is well documented, uh, smack dab in the age of reason uh, during the Enlightenment period, when empiricism was beginning to take on an authority all to its own, much to the sh- much to the chagrin of the church. Right, that's interesting. It would have been nice to to catch the werewolf. Maybe there's a a different trajectory with the whole <laughs> age of reason if they had done something like that. But uh, there's also the association with the full moon. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Well, of course, the moon exerts all kinds of influences on the planet, on uh, even human, you know the very biology of, of animals. Uh, you know, the menstrual cycle comes to mind. Um, so again, there's that you know the the element of, of supernaturalism associated with the moon, its association with the various gods of antiquity uh, and late antiquity uh, ex- exists. But you add into that the traditions of you know non-literate or so-called primitive peoples, the people who believe in totems, they could see the various influences that the celestial bodies had on uh, the world, not just the moon, but also the sun. You know, somehow the, the Maya and the Aztec knew that rain was important, but the sun controlled the weather on the planet. Uh, no, you know, no sun, no rain. Um, in the same way, they knew that the moon exerted, you know, they and others, many others, knew that the moon exerted influences over not just the planet, but also the animals and people, plants, on the planet. Uh, so this idea of this connection between the moon and its influences on humans and animals is very old. It's antique. It's primeval. As to the influence of the moon to prompt or, or promote a kind of change, this may, this may have something to do with rituals that were done at certain points in the lunar calendar, uh, in this case, the, the apex of a, a month, of the full moon, it just seems to me that, that uh, uh, some sort of ritual is involved there for that, that to, to welcome that kind of entity to begin with and then for the entity to, be, to begin to make those kinds of changes. And uh, timing in ritual is very important and that is likely another connection between the changes brought on by the werewolf and the moon uh, prompting those changes. Right. And, you know, even tying it to sort of, I guess, the spirit of the werewolf, you know, similar to the spirit of the vampire, uh, you know, when we, when we look at, 
the horrific acts of you know those like Jeffrey Dahmer or Ed Gain. Ed Gain specifically, um, you know, it's a little grotesque uh, to think about, but he had uh, preserved the uh, the skin of his mother, and he even confessed to wearing it and uh, running outside and dancing in the moonlight. You know, so things like that, which is pretty bizarre. And um, you know, I, I wouldn't. I would imagine that it takes a non-human spirit for that sort of uh, behavior uh, to manifest. Yes, that's a that's a specific kind of tutelage um, un, under demonic influence. I mean that that right there is is the classic uh, is the classic archetype of a witch. In fact, it's the it's the anthropological definition of a witch, and I don't want to get too diffuse or protracted here. Um, but that that you know that sort of thing speaks of, of of individuals like that being directly taught or influenced by demons. Right. What about um, Basil? Do you have anything else with no? I, no. I was. I mean, I was going to say we've said so much about witches. We might actually want to get into that a little bit. I was going to say, yeah, there might be, <laughs> there seems to be a connection right. with the witch uh, in general. And uh, so what, what's the the origin of the the modern witch as we sort of well, uh, see it portrayed? Well, uh, the the witch, too, uh, has, a, has its origins in the Antediluvian world. You know, the classic model of a solitary witch, whether male or female, uh, goes back to this tutelage uh, between the, the watcher angels and humanity. For genetic access to human females, this, there seems to be a kind of exchange of knowledge here, which was a, a combination of practical knowledge and occult knowledge. Because, in, What do you mean by practical knowledge? Well, in the Book of Enoch, the, um, the watchers are recounted as, as teaching things like um, uh, metallurgy or uh, uh, meteorology or uh, herbal medicine, but in the same set of descriptions, they're also uh, teaching root cuttings and how to, how to poison people with herbs. They're also teaching divination and astrology and the use of, uh, well, Azazel seems to be the most culpable on this part because he's, he's, he's accused that, well, he, he did reveal things to people, heavenly secrets, I think is the, the phrase that's used, uh, to humanity and, and teaching them for nefarious ends. And so that's why I say that there's this combination of, of practical science, practical knowledge with this occult knowledge. The occult side of that, uh, you have the picture of the witch and the demon, or in this case, fallen angel, who is teaching the witch these arts. And you know, I, 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 I don't uh, talking about a very specific kind of witch, the most dangerous kind of witch. I'm not saying that that other traditions aren't dangerous. Uh, they certainly are, and can be. Uh, but they've been written on and, and talked about to no end, and I don't want to cover cover any ground that's been gone over. It's this what I call the primal witch. Ah, uh, that sounds scary. 
Well, primal in fact, in the, the sense that you have to go to the antediluvian world to look for the model, and so it, it is this primal, primeval sort of, of archetype that you're looking at. But um, right, even even today, if uh, you know, if you talk to the anthropologist, uh, they'll all give you a definition of witchcraft. What is a witch? Well, a witch is not somebody in a community who has that community's best interest at heart. In fact, they work anathema to whatever that culture considers to be the norm. Mm. Uh, and they're, they're outcasts. Uh, they, they sell their services for often selfishness. And they're, they're not, you know, it's, it's not the, um, it's not the sugar-coated, you know, version of the witch, again, that we have in popular culture these days. Right. Well, it's interesting because a lot of times we hear about a witch just being, you know, not just, but you, you hear about witches um, being in particular uh, a woman and men, I, I believe, are called warlocks, but who practice just uh, what we would call general occult practices or maybe even Wiccans or something like that. What you're talking about is something a little bit different than that. Yes, yes. Um, I'm, typically, these individuals operate um, by themselves. Right. Now, there are, there are occultists who practice, you know, high ritual magic and then be part of an order. E- equally dangerous because they're also under the schooling of, of demons or at the very least demonic doctrine. Right. Uh, but these are, these are people who are wholly taken over by a demon and taught these arts. And in other words, they may not necessarily learn them from a book. They're getting them directly from the source. Got it. And these are the ones that, uh, these are the ones who live alone, alone in the forest and, uh, lure small children to their homes. Yeah. You know, in, in, even in, even in that, that, um, um, sort of Hansel and Gretel motif, even in the Grimm's fairy tale, there is that kernel of truth that these, you know, these individuals were typically a pariah in the community. They were um, peripheralized, marginalized by a community. So very often they, you know, they might have, you know, had, out of necessity had to live uh, out in the middle of, uh, of the woods. Right. And, uh, because of uh, the, the potency of... Uh, a child, you know, we know the potency of children in, in uh, occult sacrifices. Right. Um, Even a little red riding hood, if tying it back to the werewolf. Exactly. Exactly. Now, so there's, I, a, there's a nugget of truth, uh, is what I'm saying, in, in all these, and they reflect this model of the primal witch that I'm talking about. Right. Yeah. I think I, think I, I recognize that as you as you describe it here and i you know it takes me back to the uh you know disney films and stuff but it, it seems to be um uh, even like cinderella or or even uh what's that recent um the one where everybody oh, sang the songs uh with the, the, the ice one the <laughs> frozen, frozen bro frozen, frozen bro frozen. that that you're the, the one uh, with sister, the daughter right? here the, yeah i know right well she couldn't stand the song but um, 
but, but you know what I'm talking about. The the da, one of the sisters, right? She gets kind of isolated in her ice castle. You know, uh, it seems to be a similar motif there. But but Basil, you had you were about to dive into something. Well, I was going to say. I mean, the whole witch thing. Uh, I, we've covered it a little bit here, but it also there's. It makes me think uh, maybe it's just because i really want to get to zombies not gonna lie (laughs) maybe it's just because i want to get to zombies but you have things like witch doctors and voodoo and zombies hey how's that for a segue everybody (laughs) so have you done any i know zombies are actually and maybe I'm wrong here, but for the most part, um, we did do a zombie episode last Halloween. And for the most part, what we found was that zombies are more of a, a, a cultural phenomenon of the Caribbean um, and, and a little bit coming from um, Africa and things like that. But have, have you looked into zombies at all? Uh, a bit. Uh, not nearly as much as uh, vampires or werewolves or um even witches. Uh, right. I actually spent a lot of my... I have a, a teaching field in early modern Europe, and I, I spent a lot of my time studying the history of witchcraft. So I, I wrote... Well, my master's thesis is actually on witchcraft, too, so I've done right. quite a bit of work on that. At any rate, as I encounter... You know, going through that kind of literature, you're invariably going to run into the topic of zombies. And from... All you right. Know, my, my my exposure to uh, the, the subject really came in my anthropology classes, uh, and they were discussions about the Caribbean and the traditions that were associated with Vodun, and also the, the, the West African religions from which the ideas kind of sprang. But again, these sort of dead creatures are, you know, they're they're very common in world folklore, more common than people might think. Um, if you spin the globe to the other side of the world, you have the uh, the ghoul in uh, uh, Arabian folklore, mm. which is uh, a, a kind of a revenant, sort of a, a demonic creature. Um, but in fact, from uh, from the Middle East all the way to the Hindu Kush, where the Himalayas start, uh, you've got stories of these these creatures that waylay uh, caravans and people going through remote mountain passes and passing through ruins and things like that. You know, in many ways, the the zombie is a can be a kind of vampire because they they I think that the, the demonic spirit must at least be similar because they're they're hungry they're feeding on on uh blood or or tissue or whatever right so i i think that at the at the heart the the demonic entity may be the same if not very similar but the uh it is very interesting you know these um these stories of these kind of of revenant creatures the practices in in vodun uh although although laced with certainly demonic influence in the occult, it seems to me that the use of the actual zombie powder is something altogether different than the zombies that we find in popular culture. 
Uh, now, granted, the creation of a zombie in Caribbean culture or something is basically to, to create some kind of a, 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 a slave, you know, some sort of right. servant or something. But the, the zombies of popular culture seem to be rooted in uh, traditions that are actually more Middle Eastern than they are Caribbean. They have more in common with uh, mummies and ghouls than they do mummies. Uh, the uh, Caribbean zombies. Speaking of mummies, <laughs> since you bring it up, uh, fun pop culture fact for everybody. They're making a remake of The Mummy, originally filmed with Brendan Fraser. Which is actually a remake of an older mummy. Which is a remake of an older mummy. But the new mummy is going to be a girl mummy. Um, that's just a fun fact for everybody. Uh, which proves they don't have any new ideas. They're just recycling <laughs> these old occult tales. Exactly. So, so what do you got on mummies? Anything cool? Uh, always. Uh, the, always. Uh, <laughs> I've <laughs> always got cool things on mummies, he says. The mummies were, of course, uh, the Egyptian mechanism for preserving the body for the afterlife. Right. Uh, this, but in, and initially, after the, the early king period going into the old kingdom, when you have the, uh, the cult of uh, Ra, which was the, the overarching religion during that period, mummification was almost strictly purview of the pharaoh, the priests, the upper crust of Egyptian society. Everything right. was done to ensure that particularly the pharaoh and his family were going to make it into the afterlife. And they believed that they would need to preserve their bodies for use in the afterlife. And, of course, there were all kinds of treatments of the body was desiccated or organs were taken out and put in canopic jars. It was treated with spices and oils, and then it was wrapped in linen. Right. What about the stories of these mummies coming alive and protecting their treasures and chasing Brendan Fraser around? Well, I don't know specifically about chasing Brendan Fraser around, but the <laughs> stories about, uh, the stories about um, these curses probably stem, from, stem less from our own popular culture and more from actual incantations and hymns and spells to be found in things like the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Pyramid Text from the, the Pyramid at Saqqara. Right. Which were prescriptions basically for protecting, ensuring the safety of uh, the remnants of these pharaohs and priests and whatnot for their journey to the afterlife. Initially against things like, you know, evil spirits or, or you know, desecrators or whatever. Right. Um, so th that... And it's, uh, you know, I mean, if you want to call that a curse, I suppose you'd call it a curse. Well, wasn't there um, stories of the archaeological uh, excavators who entered mummies' tombs and then, you know, quickly found sick. financial oh, ruin my. or yeah. some crazy the, probably, sickness? Probably the most famous um, one was the, the case of Lord Carnarvon, who was a, a patron and assistant to the archaeologist Howard Carter. They, uh, these are the guys who uncovered the Tutankhamun uh, tomb in the Valley of the Kings in 1922. Right. Uh, Carnarvon got a mosquito bite 
and he was shaving himself one day and cut the mosquito mosquito bite, it became infected, and he died from the infection. Yikers. And his papers grabbed, grabbed this and, you know, called it the curse of King Tut, and um, uh, I believe that there, were, there may have been a couple of other workers who also died during the course of the excavation, but Carnarvon was the high-profile guy. You don't think that that was any sort of a result of a curse or just well, you poor, got the you got the poor mosquito, hygiene. mosquito, which is the uh, you know the the insectoid of the uh, vampiric spirit. Oh, making connections, connecting dots. Here we go, people. <laughs> well, the uh, the as I say, the prescriptions and the incantations that were were recorded for these burials. Obviously, from our, from our perspective, from the believer's perspective, and I believe they were, demonically inspired and influenced. And so from, in that respect, they can be called a curse. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as for mummies getting up and, and walking around, I think that, that there's more Victorian fancy in that. And, uh, <laughs> Sorry, that may be, Sorry it, Basil. It may be Maybe convoluting um, the mummy with the ghoul to some 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 extent. Good old Victorian fancy. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know they they found um, uh, uh, recently. This is back in September. They unveiled a four thousand year old Egyptian manuscript that uh, it, it predates the Book of the Dead by I think about a thousand years is what they said, and um, it has 16 feet of leather illustrations. Uh, it, it has depicted uh, divine beings. Uh, it has spells uh, that would have been used as incantations by priests. And um, it also has a, a spiritual map of the underworld with uh, you know up to 100 different spells to aid the departed in the afterlife to protect them from supernatural beings to help ensure eternal life. And, uh, you know, it, it seems to confirm some of the, the traditions of what, you know, what we find in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. But uh, have you heard about this finding? And is it what's, you know, is I remember there... seeing the uh, the headline. Um, I've not been able to read much into the find itself. I just, I just know the very basic elements of it, that it is a... Uh, I, I was actually surprised that it uh, it was made out of leather. Right, right, because most Ooh. of it is papyrus, uh, and they were saying that it's even more challenging in some regard to preserve leather. But you know, the, just out of curiosity, and this sort of sidetracks from you know all the the, the uh, ghouls and whatnot. But what's what's perhaps the most uh, historically significant artifact that you've come in contact with, uh, you know, on your travels or in your studies? The most historically. You know, like a Nephilim well, skull or, or something like that? Or? No Nephilim skull yet. I've got a, actually got a couple of projects in the works right now that I can't say a whole lot about. Uh, Ooh. They're, they're in the works uh, for expeditions to find remnants of, of just that. Well, you know, all the artifacts that I find are historically relevant. I mean, they, whether it's a, you know, a coin or a... You know, there's a Spanish mission right now in Central Texas that I'm working on. And, uh, you know, you find all you find things like um, you know mortar from the bricks and 
and gunflints and arrowheads that were made by missionized Indians. You know, it all it's all important because it tells you something about the, the it helps you write the culture narrative about the culture that you're dealing with in the archaeological record. And I would approach, you know, on an excavation of a potential giant site, I would approach those sites with the same kind of rigor and scrutiny that I deal with in any other archaeological site that I work on. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't think anybody is. I, I personally am actually very excited about relics or just things that have historical, even just hints. They don't even have to be a, a tablet with mm-hmm. the, the recipe to Pharaoh's favorite dish on it. But I've got all sorts of little things here hanging around my apartment that I consider significant. I have okay. a, um, a question about a creature that I'm wondering if you have any information on, because I think it's actually uh, an entity that's not really spoken of too much, at least that I've heard of, and that is jinn or a genie. Oh, yes, the jinn of, uh, of uh, Islamic tradition. Yes, you know, uh, phenomenal cosmic power, itty-bitty living space. Yes, the, uh, the, jinn, uh, the jinn were an order of... Uh, angelic creature, not dissimilar to the, the demons found in Judeo-Christian tradition, just in terms of their, their description. Right. Uh, they come to us mainly through the lens of the Thousand and One Arabian Nights, which was a text that was translated by uh, an ancestor of mine, an explorer named Sir Richard Francis Burton. An ancestor of yours? Mm-hmm. So you've got the. We're we're supposed to be related. Very cool. Yeah, I I guess I kind of got the. Speaking of genetics, I guess I've got the genetics for the gig. But uh, he he was kind of an interesting character in his own right. Anyway, he was a a, just an incredible linguist. He spoke probably about twenty-five languages. He translated this text into English, and of course the, the. story itself had stories about the jinn, the genie. Uh, we tend to think of them as, as these entities that live in uh, a lamp. You rub the lamp, they come out, and they give you three wishes. Well, probably more like a box, uh, you know, an ivory box or something like that in the, the, the world that Bert was talking about. W- whatever the space, these were nefarious demonic creatures, and so they played upon human weakness uh, in the, the lore of uh, Islamic Arabia. And they might grant you your wishes, but they, in the end, would exact a heavy toll, usually the individual's life, uh, for doing that. So there you have basically the description of the jinn. Now, I mean, it, it's kind of hard to really talk about I don't know. Histori- is there any like legit historical uh, stories of jinn, or because I've heard some actually some modern experiences that people um, attribute to jinn, uh, specifically within the Muslim faith, and uh, it, them exhibiting some very demonic. Um, uh, I don't even know activities or or behaviors. I guess. Um, 
but is is there anything that you can point to that is that an actual study or how did well and, I, it, outside of their reference in the Quran and the Hadith, a lot of what we know let's just say in terms of, of anthropology, just in terms of culture, a lot of what we know comes from what has been preserved um, by people like Bedouin, mm-hmm. uh, who, who are almost, you know, I mean, they're, there are literate Bedouins, but uh, that tends to be the exception rather than the rule, especially in remote areas of the Middle East. Right. A lot of these stories come from tribes living in very remote parts of the Near East, people that, that are still using an oral culture, and they've, they've been transmitted uh, over the years. In, in fact, you know, in the case of, you know, 1001 Arabian Nights, it's kind of a, a catch-all for some of these stories. So it's, um, 1001 Arabian Nights is, is, you know, it's kind of, in some respects, like Grimm's fairy tales in that way. Right, but in terms of of you know a, a, an artifact or a text, I know that there are some artistic depictions of, of Jim. Um, but in terms of a, an artifact or a, a manuscript out, out outside of the the textual tradition of Islam, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Interesting. Wasn't there some? I guess some rumors, maybe in. I guess Iran, where there have you know been some uh, accusations of certain uh, political leaders, uh, you know, conjuring the jinn and even being, you know, arrested for it or something. I don't know if I'm clear on this story, but there's I, I don't know about that. Yeah, there, there's some there's some stories that are. You know, it, this is in the past few years. You know, I'm, I'm just pulling something up here from 2011. I, I have a hard time pronouncing this name all the time. Ahmadinejad, <laughs> the guy from Ahmadinejad. Ahmadinejad, uh, allies charged with sorcery, and in, in the the story here it talks about how uh, uh, several people said to be close to the president and his chief of staff, Esfandiar Rahim Mashai, have been arrested in recent days and charged with being magicians and invoking jinn, the spirits. So it's it seems to be. Um, much more real in the sense of politics even you know and, and what i'm starting to kind of hear you say uh dr burton when you talk about all these things there's a theme here that seems to be repeating over and over again and you know it, it, you you tied it back to the spirit of the nephilim you know at the beginning but it just seems like it always goes back to that and all of these different uh, shades of creatures or mythologies or stories or lore that come from uh, you know the various cultures is just that it's a, it's a cultural description uh, from a given time and place of these same spirits manifesting in different ways uh, is that an accurate sort of description of uh, an overview of what you're looking at with all this yeah yes you you just described what I, what I've I um, I've taken to calling over the past couple of years, ethnodemonology. Uh, I'm Ooh. writing a, a, a book on that, but I'm, I'm set to write it in a couple of months anyway on that topic. But yeah, you, 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 you've encapsulated it very well. The origins of these things all go back to the origin of, of demons, which takes us back to the, the antediluvian world right. and the punishment of the watchers and the giants. Very interesting. 
which is so strange kind of in a sense that, you know, it, it, it's a testimony of the word of God being true in a very strange way for, for many probably to swallow. But you're right. It, it is. Yeah. Now, Dr. Burton, we are coming up here on what is obviously a holiday that has some very obvious um, demonic ties. Is there anything specific you'd like to say? Two question, two part question. Is there anything specific that you can tell us about Halloween that maybe isn't in the the normal public knowledge or the general knowledge of a Christian? And then uh, I would like to give you a chance to tell us about your favorite mythological being and its roots. Okay. Uh, well, the the holiday itself stems from the agrarian festivals of the old world, uh, one in particular that the Celts celebrated in the fall, you know, at the end of summer, the gathering and the harvest, a festival called Samhain, which was the in the various Celtic times of the word for November, actually. Hmm. And it was thought to have been a time when the veil between this world and the spirit world was, was thin, and one could commune with that world, you get the sense of um, both worlds overlapping somehow so that, that spirits could come on this side and maybe people could go on the other side too. But of course it, it was celebrated with many names all over the old world really, even before the Celtic period. But the, just in terms of the origins of Halloween, we typically trace it back to the Celtic world. And it was, of course, um, you know, those those pagans that initially practiced it, once the church became a, a growing religious force and began to missionize Europe, those pagan practices were outlawed and, and began to recede into the, uh, the private sphere of the home and in some cases became preserved as kind of Hearth religions, and if you, you know, if you were caught practicing these, you know, these things, uh, you know, you found yourself branded as a heretic or tortured or on the extreme end, you know, put to death. Uh, witchcraft in some places was a capital punishment up until uh, the 20th century. Uh, even down here in the valley in Texas, I'm trying to remember where the place was. Is either in Texas or in the Rio Grande Valley in Mexico, where a guy was, I believe they hanged him. Mm. So Halloween, in its most pagan sense, had to kind of go underground and just go, you know, happen within the... Yeah. Well, uh, the church did with, with it what it did with many things pagan. They canonized things. And they did this with the old pagan festivals in the course of the year. They gave them, you know, Christian meanings. Samhain became Halloween, you know, All Hallows' Eve before uh, All Saints' Day on November the 1st. Uh, so that it was a celebration of, of saints that didn't have saints' days during the course of the Christian calendar. They would canonize places where pagans were used to meeting for worship, and they would build churches there, right. and so forth and so on. Um, that's that's what happened with Halloween, and this 
people began to come to the New World, they brought the celebration with them. And so that it, it remained Halloween in English-speaking parts of, of the colonies in North America. And in uh, uh, Latin America, it became uh, Dia de los Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Hmm. That's fascinating. And then just all of these sort of spooky... I'm interested in how all these, you know, mummies and vampires and werewolves and everything just kind of got it just included within the Halloween thing in, in modern times. I mean, I guess it just got turned into a spooky time. Yeah, it's, it, it's, a, it's a mishmash because Halloween became a, a catch-all for, you know, all of these things from from uh, popular literature and movies, uh, you know, it was, it was like a snowball. You know, it, it, the, the holiday itself just just caught everything. And so now that it, you know, it's not just everything that's spooky, but it's anything you can imagine to dress up as. You're as likely to see little kids trick or treating as Batman as you are Dracula. Right. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, what's your favorite mythological creature or entity, shall I say? Well, not because I like them, but only because I feel called to research them, and that was even excellent. Ah, there you go. There we go. Well, very cool. Yeah, and uh, it, it, you know it's interesting. Nephilim is—it's a huge subject of this show, and obviously the fringe Christian community. And I think uh, a huge part of that is because of the big, biblical basis of those creatures yeah. and the the you know the modern consequences of uh, their existence. Really, well, I agree, and I, I like what Steve Quill said. He he called the Nephilim the the Rosetta Stone of the Bible. Mm, that's the, interesting. The biblical, biblical narrative really pops to life once you, you know, once you allow for that. Right, right. Well, that's interesting. I mean, that's great. Steve Quill is a wonderful researcher, and uh, I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with that uh, quote you're talking about. But, you know, the, this has been a great conversation. Dr. Judd Burton um, Do you think you I know? could dive in for one more real quick question? No, you're done. You're out of here. <laughs> what do you got there, Gonzo? <laughs> I was just wondering, in your circles in terms of the uh, the academic realm where you operate, what do they think of the Nephilim and the giants? And, and Because obviously they, I mean, most of your institutional scholars and whatnot, they, they recognize that there's a lot of literature and mythology and whatnot surrounding it, but what do they think in terms of its reality? You know, how do they deal with it? Do they just dismiss it as folklore or, or, you know, how do they, and it's specifically to you. I mean, you know, if you, you do, uh, you know, work, have a day job and, uh, you're around these academics, if I'm not mistaken. I'm one of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm just curious what people think of your research and, and, you know, how they, uh, did they look at you like you have uh, you have you three nephilim heads yourself or what what's kind of the the atmosphere there well i i should say that i've been pretty fortunate in colleagues that I do have um they may not always agree uh with my conclusions but they they for the most part have respected the journey you know they know my record they know that i, I for years and years I, I i did the conventional stuff you know I, I did archaeological survey and excavation and 
published like the rest of them. Uh, so they understand that I've got that grounding. You know, there's the occasional raised eyebrow and giants, you know, really, you know. But as I say, I've been pretty fortunate. Like the, the immediate colleagues that I have uh, at South Texas College here. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's marginalized, it's peripheralized. But, you know, one of the things I always bring up to people is that, you know, think of all the, the cryptids that we, you know, ones that we have quantifiable evidence for, we have specimens for that we once thought were extinct. National Geographic will throw money, you know, National Endowment for Humanities or Sciences will throw tons of money at projects to find some monkey in uh, South America that, you know, was believed to be mythological, and we find out that it was real, you know. On those grounds, I would say that, you know, even if you strip the, the theology or the religious element from it, which you really can't, but even if you if you did that from the issue of the Nephilim, why is the pursuit of the Nephilim any different than the pursuit of, you know, the coelacanth or or some other animal, you know, that we've we've proven is not extinct. So, you know, they, they for the most part I should say that I, I've been fortunate in that they at least respect the journey that I'm taking. That's cool. And I, I wanted to ask just because I know we have, you know, some younger listeners and I'm sure that, uh, you know, these topics are of interest to them to, you know, perhaps even pursue a a scholarly academic career in these topics. And so, you know, um, just to encourage them to, if they're interested in stuff like that, that there is a path, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. You have to follow your passion. I mean, if that, you know, you don't need a PhD to to research this. It's just that, you know, these graduate degrees can give you all kinds of tools, methodological tools, that you might not have otherwise. But, you know, from the historical end of this stuff, you can look at the text like the early Christian literature that references giants and watchers or the, the extra-biblical literature or Genesis or any of the books of the Torah or the Old Testament. You know, there's a textual tradition there, that, which means that there's an intellectual historical tradition there. And, you know, that, that that's a whole other dimension to studying the Nephilim. It's just from, from the intellectual historical angle. Cool. So I, I would encourage, you know, my younger listeners to prayerfully pursue their passions. Amen. I would say the same thing. I think we're all on board. All right, Dr. Uh, Burton, this has been so, so interesting, actually. And I'm glad we got to talk about uh, a few more of these uh, sort of seasonal creatures that we think about here. And uh, your your knowledge and insight has been uh, uh, of a great value to me, and I'm sure to all the listeners and Gons, especially Gons, more than anybody. And so uh, do you have anything coming up? Are you speaking anywhere? You got another book coming out? Where can people find your information in case they want to look more into you? Well, they can visit the website at burtonbeyond.com. Uh, people can email me. The email address is on there, but it's professorburton at yahoo.com. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Uh, I've, I've got uh, Interview with the Giant is available through the website. Um, 
you can get a number of other. I've also got a book uh, that I edited last year um, on the history of Halloween that's available if people are interested because it's that time of the year. Uh, right now, i got a couple of projects related to this. I'm writing a sequel to Interview with the Giants. Cool. Uh, which is basically on the, the role that Giants and Watchers played in the, the origins of human society. And I also have, I'm almost done with a, a book on uh, Caesarea Philippi, Bonius, the place that I did my dissertation on. Uh, that will be ready pretty soon. And I'm working with an artist right now named Aaron Sadal, who is just an incredible illustrator. And we're doing a, 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 a book. We just signed on the publisher, and the book should be out in 2017. Um, it's a, a, a giant bestiary, kind of in the vein of the, uh, the medieval illuminated manuscript bestiaries or, or um, for the diehard uh, Tolkien fans, there was a Tolkien bestiary that talked about all the races and creatures in Middle Earth. It's, it's written along those, those kinds of styles, but it deals with the giants in the Bible. Very cool. That that is where I stand now for updates. People can, uh, easiest way is probably to watch the Twitter feed that I have on my website. On your website. What's your Twitter handle? The Twitter handle is Burton Beyond. All right. Very cool. Well, again, thanks so much for coming on the show, buddy. And we'll definitely uh, get you on again soon when your book comes out, when your new projects happen. And, uh, you know, there you go, folks. Make sure to go to BurtonBeyond.com. Check out Burton Beyond on Twitter. Check out his stuff. It's very cool. And uh, thanks again, buddy, for coming on the show. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. So there you have it, folks. Make sure to check out Burton Beyond. Check out all his cool stuff. He's a cool guy. Cool guy with cool stuff. Do it. Cool Twitter. guy, cool guy, twice. <laughs> cool guy, cool guy, cool stuff. Uh, go do that. It's going to be awesome. Is that racist uh, just now? Was, was that... Cool guy, cool guy, cool stuff? I guess not. All right. Never mind. I'm, I'm hallucinating. Yeah, you... Gons is really sleep-deprived right now. Um, anyways, okay, so go do that. Cool guy, cool guy, cool stuff. And uh, what else we got? Make sure to go to canarycryradio.com. We got a cool financial uh, support tab there. <laughs> that sounds so dumb. It's cool. We have a cool support tab there. You can click on that. And there's options to make a monthly donation in any amount if Canary Cry Radio is your your thing. If you're into it, if you want to support the show, it's the only reason the show keeps going, to be honest. I mean, not that Gons and I wouldn't just keep doing this because it's fun, but, uh, you know, there are expenses, and me and Gons are, are lower middle class or <laughs> upper lower class. We're not cool guys. That's, that's not right. 
We're <laughs> we're <laughs> what are you, what are we're, you doing? We're not we're not we're, we're not Richie Rich. We don't have or blank check. That was a good movie. Anybody remember that movie? I remember that one. That was a good movie. Yeah, I watched that one. I watched that one. Macaulay Culkin, right? Yep. Yeah. Blank, blank check. That was like it's so awesome. It's like my dream Anyways, come true. Yep. So that's the thing. So if you want to support Canary Cry Radio, you can do so in a monthly donation there. Or if commitment's not your thing, you can make a one-time donation in any amount. Any amount. Like one cent or two cents. Um, that would be funny if you did that. I would laugh. It would be a nice joke. And then we would cry. <laughs> we would cry. Anyways, so there's that. Um, also, okay, so, you know, I know everybody's tired of hearing about the Canary Cry Archive Project. But seriously, guys, these things are awesome. I've been getting samples from the companies, that, and we're, we're just getting ready to purchase them and get them sent out to us. They are so cool. Uh, they're made of some sort of alloy. I forget. The guy explained it to me. Very durable. Um, I believe waterproof. Uh, I hope so because I've been saying that this whole time. They are waterproof. And, uh, you know, the idea is that someday, I mean, maybe not so far away, the internet could disappear. I mean, or go down or, uh, you know, Canary Cry Radio could be censored. And what would happen then? That would just be it and we'd be done. And everything that we've done over the past two, three years would just have disappeared. But if we get enough of these USB drives out there, then uh, we could live on and people can upload and share and spread spread the good news. I'm picturing like this, uh, you know, post-apocalyptic world where these uh, these people are like scrounging around with like, you know, machine guns and, uh, you know, bullet chain belts and stuff. And they're they have the USB drive in their hand and they're like scouring through these uh abandoned buildings looking for a computer to get right. the vital information. Yeah, it's vital information and you gotta like protect it and get it out there so people know what's going on. Anyway, so that's totally a thing. Um, it's, it's a fun idea. We like it. And, uh, you know, honestly, it's not too far fetched. So there's that. But, like we've said before, Gons and I are not in the business of retail. We're not here to just sell retail and do that. That's not our business. Um, but if you guys feel led and you love Canary Cry Radio and you want to be part of the post-apocalyptic Canary Cry Radio Club... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that a club you just made up? It's there? just a club. I just made it up. Um, and if you want to be in that club, uh, you can go to canarycryradio.com, click on the support tab, and there's an option to uh, support for the USB drive. Also, if you just sign up for $15 a month or more, uh, then we can send that off to you. That would be wonderful. Then you'd have a cool thing. We would be able to keep the lights on, and uh, we're all good. So there you go. Also, make sure to like our Facebook page, like our Twitter, subscribe to YouTube. More Sock Puppets coming. Okay, there you go, everybody. That's all the good stuff. All right, here we go. Are you done? Are you done? Thanks for listening to this episode of Canary Cry Radio. Make sure to tune in next time. You know what's happening next time. Oh, gosh. Oh, episode 100. All right, almost to 100 episodes, everybody. There you go. So make sure to tune in to the 100th episode of Canary Cry Radio. But until then, everybody together now, think outside the cage. Uh, no, not you. It's just other people. It's other people. Okay, here we go. Why don't I get oh, to we'll participate? Do you don't get own. to do it. You don't get to do it. Okay, here we go. No. Uh, 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 sh- 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 sh. Okay. Everybody! Everybody in the world! Here we go. Uh, okay, here we go. One, 
two, three. Think outside the cage. <laughs> Just throw everybody off with that. <laughs> you know you what we should do? We should ask everybody to call into the speak pipe and just oh. say, think outside the cage, and oh we'll do it together at the God. end. Everybody should do that. Okay, everybody listening right now, <laughs> this is a moment going down in history. Gons had a great idea. That's right. You write it down. Gons had a good idea today, <laughs> which is... Everybody, go to canarycryradio.com. We should maybe even put this at the beginning so people can listen to it. Or not. We'll just leave it for the people at the end. Okay. Go to canarycryradio.com. On the right-hand side of the page is a little green tab. Click on it. Leave a voicemail and say, think outside the cage. Do it. And Do then it. we will edit together everybody saying it. Yes. Even if it's all three of you. No, listening. they know that. I'll just pretend to be like a hundred people. Yeah, we'll just make it sound like more than it really was. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. Okay. Go do it, everybody. Okay. Bye. There you have it, folks. Make sure to check out. Bert. <sighs> Sorry. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Ready? Here we go. Okay, guys. All right.